Good afternoon, and thanks again so much for being with us on this Thursday. We have a lot to get to, as you've been hearing in the news. A sigh of relief for people on CERB. That program has been extended by four weeks, but it will at that point, uh, that's the plan anyway, shift over to EI and some other new programs just announced by the federal government. We're going to talk about that later on in the program, and we have an employment lawyer joining us. So if you have any questions, you'll want to call in, or you can email your questions to me and let me know what your concerns are, what you would like to know. Coming up on the program, we're going to hear more about an absolutely heartbreaking story, talking about the death of baby Mac back in January of 2017. Today, the announcement charges have been laid in that case. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And we'll have the very latest on the back to school plan in Vancouver, as well as the wildfires still burning in the Okanagan. But we start today revisiting something we have been talking about on this program. Yesterday, we were starting to get a bit of an idea as to what was in the documents that were released. Uh, More than 5,000 documents, I think. We know much of the documents, uh, many of them are redacted. So a lot of information, it's impossible to know what was there. But Sam Cooper, who is a global news investigative journalist, has been poring over what we can read and what we can see in those documents. And he joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Uh, What have you found out so far from uh, going through these documents? Well, our team was looking through all these records yesterday. And uh, what what really jumped out to us was, uh, first of all, the... The, the emails really portray the picture of how close this government and this group, uh, the charity, we are. In fact, you know, the, some of the emails uh, portrayed uh, the, the office of former finance minister Bill Morneau and we as besties. So that would be best friends. Other, uh, you know, other records showed uh, the one of the we founders, one of the Kielberger brothers emailed uh, the former fine minister, finance minister directly in, in April, calling him Bill with warm regards and talking about uh, this massive, you know, proposal. And so that kind of it, it, it sort of goes against what the government has been saying. They, they've been saying that, uh, you know, they they did their due diligence. Uh, we was the only uh, entity that could really manage this program. But uh, when you dig in between the lines, it, it really seemed uh, that certain, you know, bureaucrats, it, it's, it's as if they're getting the message that uh, the prime minister and the finance minister really want this deal to go to we. And this is against, you know, some strong warnings that were coming out from Treasury Board officials. The emails tell us about these officials who are in charge of the purse strings of the nation are, are countering this deal and saying, we don't know, uh, there, there could be serious integrity concerns with a third party managing such a large program. Can they vet it for fraud? You know, uh, there could be huge integrity concerns with students filling in their own hours, you know, and getting these grants. So those were just a few of the things that jumped out that seemed to counter the narrative we're hearing from the government. And what about the timing of these in the, again, the documents that haven't been redacted? There are timestamps of when these emails were sent, when they were received. Uh, What does that show us as far as, again, what we were told at the committee and when this correspondence was actually taking place? That's right. The timelining in the email records really tells a story. Uh, We know that in... Early April, uh, the Prime Minister and Finance Minister started to talk about some sort of big program for students. And the emails just show a real flow of correspondence between we 
and government officials. Uh, again, on April 20th, we have Wee's founder emailing Bill Moore no, directly. Uh, on April 22nd, we have uh, an email from a very senior government official saying that she understands the prime minister's office and uh, the deputy prime minister's office are working directly with we on this proposal. Now, that's very interesting because she files another record in August that we found and says, sorry, I was mistaken. I've been informed that, as a matter of fact, the prime minister's office was not working with we in April. And uh, that rings a bell because we have already heard that kind of backtracking in testimony. One of the Kilberger brothers came out and said, he was mistaken when he previously said that the prime minister's office was working with we in April on this deal. So to me, uh, you know, as investigators, auditors, when you see two people backtrack on such an important point, you can say, OK, you're trying to set the record straight. Or you can say hmm, that's that's strange. Uh, why do two people now need to change their story? And again, there's a lot of records missing. Uh, some of the records do seem to support the prime minister's story that he was at least, you know, raising concerns. Are we leaning towards this one, uh, you know, uh, company or charity only? But other records uh, seem to suggest uh, there, there could be more to the story. Uh, when looking at, uh, and, and you've obviously done a, a much deeper dive into the documents and going through them, but even looking at when they were being shown yesterday, uh, the redactions, a lot of them, it looked like, were also some of the email addresses, whether it was the person who had received the email or the sender. Uh, in, in your experience as an investigative journalist, is that common practice when you get documents? I know it's common for them to be redacted. Is it common practice for the email address to be redacted? Well, in certain cases, when you have uh, the email address of someone that is considered not to be a, a government staffer, you would expect it to see a redaction, and, and fair enough. Uh, you know, it might, it might not always be nefarious. It, there may be a great reason why you know, a, a person's name shouldn't be out there. But in a case such as this, where it's so important to, to understand who is being contacted, and then we have sort of uh, various stories about who is being contacted. We have people taking back uh, their, their previous accounts of who was contacted. To me, it raises uh, maybe not a flag, but a big question mark on, on whose name could have been blanked out. I also saw in certain cases, which is, seems new to me, it, it seemed that dates on emails had been blanked out. And to me, that comes closer to a flag because I'm not quite sure why a date would be blanked out. In certain cases, there were, I believe, you know, records that recounted uh, conversations where we couldn't find the dates. And to me, that's another thing that's close to a flag because I, I hate to put it in this terms, but BC is uh, familiar with, you know, scandals where certain officials have uh, backdated, quote unquote, documents. And I'd hate to believe that that had occurred in this case. But when we're talking about the RCMP wanting to examine, you know, what happened here, I don't think you can take any of these questions off the table. Well, no, and there's a, certainly the question being, how would a date in any way identify somebody that shouldn't be identified or put information out there that's sensitive and doesn't and can't be out there? It's a date. That's exactly my thoughts when I was going through the record. When I saw the date missing, my, my immediate reaction is frustration because as an investigator, you want that timeline. You want to know when that record was created, received and read.
Uh, and one other point, and just because we've been talking so much about who knew what and, and this push to get the charity and what was said between the government officials and the charity members. This is one of the first times, though, we're hearing that there were federal public servants who were raising questions about this and who wanted more of the details. And like you touched on, were asking those questions. Do you think you'll find more on that? I think so, because, again, we, uh, the way I look at it, we need to think about where those questions are coming from. They're coming from the Treasury Board Secretariat. These are the financial experts, uh, you know, legal experts, really, that, that understand how important it is to be diligent on the, the dispersed, dispersal of, of major funds. And they're asking questions. You know, if you think about it, how uh, there, it seems reasonable to ask, can a third party that is a private contractor do the vetting on, you know, who is applying for these massive funds when we understand there is so much fraud going around uh, while the government, governments around the world are releasing funds to people in the COVID emergency? A government can do that vetting. Can a, can a third party? I think that's a fair question. Uh, I think we'll hear more from uh, people in the government that did have concerns. And on the other hand, uh, you know, people are already mentioning the SNC-Lavalin scandal and talking about how certain bureaucrats can kind of get the idea their political masters want something to happen, while others are just asking the reasonable uh, questions that a bureaucrat should. All right, Sam, we'll leave it there. Looking forward to uh, more of your pieces coming out on this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, charges have now been laid in connection to the death of toddler McAllen Sani. He was known as Baby Mac and passed away in January of 2017 at an unlicensed daycare. Earlier today, Vancouver Police Constable Tanya Visenton explained what has happened. Baby Mac tragically died at an unlicensed and unregistered daycare in East Vancouver. He was found unresponsive in the playpen. 41-year-old Susie Yasmin Sad appeared in court yesterday where she was charged with two counts of failure to provide the necessaries of life and one count of fraud over 5,000. The details of this file are gut-wrenching. Investigators have worked carefully and persistently since this tragedy happened to ensure the accused person is held responsible. Nothing can take away the pain of losing a child, but we hope the family can find some sense of closure now that charges have been laid. Joining me on the line now is Sharon Gregson, a child care advocate. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Jill. Uh, I know that, that uh, you've been so supportive of Baby Mac's parents through this. I can't even imagine what they're still going through today and learning of these charges. But we've talked about this case before and the tragedy and really how it shows, at least at that point, uh, how desperate parents are in many cases to find childcare, maybe take childcare that they, they wouldn't be, wouldn't, it wouldn't be their first choice, but there are no other choices. Uh, what, what does it say to you as as we sit here today and the update being that charges have now been laid in the death of this child. Well, uh, I want to completely respect and honor um, baby Mac's family. And so not commenting directly, of course, on that situation. But what I can tell you is that things um, this many years later have started to improve a little bit. We always knew um, that it would take a decade to improve and build a childcare system in British Columbia so that families do have good choices to make around childcare and that there are good options for all families who want and need to use childcare. We've started on that journey. 
what has what was clear then is that the market system just leaving childcare to the market um, doesn't work. We need it to be a publicly funded, publicly managed system to ensure quality and to ensure enough spaces. And government is on that journey now. Um, they've just started, and there's a lot more work to do. When you say it's a little bit better now, what improvements have been made? So um, government doesn't directly operate childcare spaces. They provide the funding in order for others, not-for-profits and for-profits and public bodies to create childcare spaces. So they have funded more than 13,000 new spaces over the last couple of years, and many of those are in operation now. They have started to ensure quality for the educators by providing $2 an hour wage enhancements for 12,000 early childhood educators in the province, and they have reduced fees for literally tens of thousands of families, including about 20 to, 20 to 30,000 families in the province who are now paying $10 a day or less for their childcare. So they have made improvements. We can't say that they, they haven't. It just can't happen quickly enough, and we have to make sure that pressure from parents and grandparents and the business community continues so that government continues to build the system that we need. Uh, do you think, though, d- does that t- give you a guarantee of, of high-quality, safe childcare in that there are a lot of privately run childcare centers, be them small centers out of homes. It's it's a business model that for a lot of people works and they have very good childcare. Uh, is there a way to, to incorporate both of those in that, uh, I mean, somebody still has to follow the rules and be good at providing childcare to make sure it's a safe and, and a safe place that meets all of the restrictions and meets all of the requirements? So that's the beauty of the $10 a day plan because it builds from what currently exists and expands licensed childcare. So that can be licensed in-home family childcare where a provider can care for up to seven children legally or it can be center-based childcare. Um, and so when when families ha- want to make that choice, they can choose a smaller family childcare option if they wish to. And that often is more accommodating for people who work non-traditional hours and shift work. But we fundamentally need to do a better job of building a system that meets the needs of families, whether it's part-time work or um, you know four days on and four days off kind of work. Right now, traditional childcare doesn't meet those kinds of needs. And so there's a lot of expansion that's needed. Um, and the $10 a day childcare campaign has got an ongoing campaign to have parents and grandparents and ECEs and, and employers participate to make sure government knows. And we're hearing from Dr. Bonnie Henry, from the Premier, from the Prime, Prime Minister, everybody now recognizing that childcare is central to recovery from the pandemic shutdown. And so there's more focus on childcare now than ever before. Uh, this case, unfortunately, really brought forward this idea or, or opened people's eyes, I think, to this. The, when we hear the phrase unlicensed, unregistered childcare facility, are, are those still a problem uh, that, you know, even anecdotally, do you hear that these are still operating and people are, are choosing them or going there because there is no other choice? Well, to care for more than two children who are not related to you by blood or marriage is actually um, not just being unlicensed, it's being illegal. And so we want to make sure that that isn't happening because that isn't um, monitored, it isn't quality care. And so we want to make sure parents do have good options. And right now there's only enough licensed child care 
for about 20% of children in the province. So a lot of the other children are being cared for by grandparents and family members and neighbours. That's great. We just want to make sure that children are safe and in quality circumstances. And so that means we need to expand the licence system. And in a, in a strange way, is the pandemic helping to shine a light on this or helping people understand and realise just how important this is? I think you're right, Jill. I saw a study released yesterday that said 98% of people recognize the value of early childhood educators now. And that's an increase of over 20% from pre-pandemic. And so I do think that we're recognizing this as we um, you know, deal with the impacts of a shutdown and people trying to work from home, um, recognizing trying to get back into the workforce, the impact on women. There's no recovery without childcare. And that's front and center for all levels of government now. All right, Sharon, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Joe. Take care. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, for many people, getting around during the pandemic has been a challenge, whether it's a reluctance to go on transit. Many people stopped going on transit earlier on. We're seeing those numbers start to come back and uh, noticing people wearing masks, which is great, given that it will be mandatory to do so in four days from now. But what about if you have a mobility device? How has it been getting around for you? Well, my next guest is raising a concern about a memo that was put out about one particular way of getting around that being on transit. Marco Pasqua joins me now. He's an inspirational speaker, also an entrepreneur and an accessibility consultant. Marco, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Jill. Appreciate uh, we, it. No, thank you. We saw that you were tweeting about this and this was about something that you had seen put out by TransLink. So what happened? Yeah, so I, I can tell you that as a wheelchair user myself, I have cerebral palsy. And fortunately for me with my business, I haven't actually required to use transit since March uh, simply because I was able to pivot my business and adapt and do things mostly virtual. My concern actually comes from my friends and uh, fellow colleagues who have disabilities as well who use mobility devices. And actually, uh, I had a friend call me yesterday to say this occurred to him in Vancouver where he was actually refused service on a front-facing bus because he didn't have an attendant with him to help strap him in. Um, and I just, uh, this is about the fifth person now who's called me. A lot of my friends know the work that I do in accessibility and they know that I'm a trusted voice in the disability community. And to have now at least five people uh, who use wheelchairs or other mobility devices such as scooters call me and say, what do I do about this? I can send a feedback form, but I don't seem to hear anything back. And so I don't like to get political. I want to make that clear. But this is actually more for me about human rights and having access to the places that we need to go to learn and play and work. And can you describe it for somebody who's not familiar when you talk about getting uh, onto a front facing bus and having to secure yourself? How does that actually work? Yeah, so normally speaking, what they do is they'll lower a ramp for you to board the bus. You get on the bus, and at which point, um, if it is a front-facing bus, it means that there are restraints that you tie yourself down uh, to the bus with. And many individuals with disabilities, they have dexterity issues, and they're not able to support themselves or to grab those hooks or buckles themselves to, you know, fasten their chair down. So many times what will happen is the driver will come out and actually support the individual uh, wearing gloves, uh, usually anyway. Uh, to uh, fasten the individual down. It's a very simple and quick process to have happen. But when I read actually that there is literature on TransLink's website that says that due to COVID-19 and uh, restrictions, uh, you know, 
thanks to the health authorities' direction, that they are no uh, longer going to be responsible for supporting somebody who doesn't have an attendant with them to strap them into a bus, which I find completely ludicrous because... If we are going to be, as of August 24th, expected to be having mandatory face masks, which would include the driver, I would presume, it would mean that if the person with the wheelchair is wearing a face mask and the driver is wearing gloves and a face mask, there should be no reason why they can't support an individual to strap them into a bus. And that's why I finally decided to say something about it. And so under normal circumstances, outside of pandemic circumstances, would it be reasonable or that a driver would help somebody? Uh, They have, but I actually, and this is not to paint a broad brush, but I actually have been refused service uh, from some drivers in the past saying that their bus is too full when I have clearly seen that the bus is not too full. Sometimes they don't want to lower the ramp because it's actually going to delay them further, and they do have times to keep. They do have bus schedules to keep. And so I would presume that many drivers don't want to be reprimanded for being late for stops even though that may mean that they were lowering a bus to support somebody with a disability. So, and the, the uh, concession of saying that we'll call you a cab does nothing for me because you might call a cab and uh, the cab will show up 20 to 25 minutes later if it shows up at all. And if I have a medical appointment to get to or something really important to get to, that's not as quick as if I were to take a bus or things of this nature. So this is why I say that this policy should be completely removed from the website and that drivers should be instructed that this is a human rights thing and that everybody should have access to a bus or the transportation needs that they have because we're all taxpayers and we all deserve the same services. Well, and doesn't it seem a bit strange to you that it does say, and I'm looking at the the, the advisory right now, that it does say mm-hmm. that they will call you a cab. Um, my sister was in a wheelchair, so we okay. used to take cabs all the time. But in that scenario, when a cab comes, the, the cab driver helps you into the car and, and secures the wheelchair in the back of the cab, in the accessible right. cab. So mm-hmm. is Translate then saying that it's not safe for our drivers to do this, but it's okay that a cab driver does this? Exactly. And not to mention the fact that there are fewer cabs on the road now with wheelchair access available, um, especially because I did a CKNW interview uh, several months back at the beginning of 2020 when Uber and Lyft was uh, really coming into play in the city. And at that time, um, taxi, the Vancouver Taxi Federation said that they were actually going to be removing subsidies for taxi drivers um, uh, who have wheelchair vehicles because Uber and Lyft drivers weren't required to have the same concessions and things in place, meaning that there was no incentive for those taxi drivers with adapted vehicles to be on the road. And that also means that there's then going to be less vehicles that are, are allowing individuals with disabilities to enter safely, as well as, you know, van vehicles overall. So I'm just saying this is, a, this is an infinite loop of terrible behavior, in my opinion, and this is the only reason why I'm speaking up about it is because I feel like everyone deserves the same rights and access. Well, well, and also, and I mean, looking at the advisory and the first line in the advisory is that it says due to the physical distancing required by health authorities in B.C., bus operators will not be able to assist our wheelchair customers with being strapped in a front facing position on conventional buses. Uh, right. Fine. But you're right. Once August 24th comes around and masks are mandatory when you're on transit, right. then those masks are there to protect everybody. And you would think and those masks are to be in place when you can't physically distance. That's what we're being told being told by our provincial health officers. So you would think that would take the that out of the equation, that it's not unsafe if everybody's wearing a mask. 
you nailed it, Jill. We're being told that masks are what is keeping us safe. So if we're following those procedures. There's absolutely no reason why we can't have the access that's required. Um, you know, and as I said, if this was for any other reason, uh, for any other purpose, if it was a color of someone's skin and someone heard that they were being refused access to get onto a vehicle, people would be up in arms. But to be quite honest with you, as a member of the disability community, a proud member, I'm sick and tired of the people with disabilities voices being the last to be considered. And so I'm pleading with TransLink to please consider the voices of many individuals with disabilities across our community. Make sure to, you know, consult with those individuals before you put up policies like this. And also consider how ludicrous that policy sounds to begin with. That that would be my plea. And you've kind of touched on this, but just so we're we're crystal clear, if somebody gets on one of these buses, and again, even so, uh, we'll take the pandemic out of it, and they need help getting, uh, being strapped in, they need help being so you're secure and so it's safe to be riding on that bus. Does the driver have to help you or is it up to the driver? Is it at the discretion of the driver? Well, okay, so there are people who are able to do those things on their own. I'm a fairly agile guy, but I have uh, my right arm is affected by my disability as well. So the right-hand side of leaning forward, I also have a very bad hip, and I'm a, mo- uh, a, um, a manual wheelchair user. So when I lean forward, it actually is quite painful. So oftentimes I take the initiative to say to the driver, as I'm getting on the bus, do you think you'd have an opportunity to please help me with the belts when you have a second? Mm-hmm. And most drivers are very friendly, and they'll say absolutely. But sometimes if I don't come out right and say it, they just, uh, they'll look back at me in the rearview mirror and say, well, are you all set to go? without basically making the assumption that I'm already ready to go. And and yes, there are a lot of rear-facing buses now where a person can just back their scooter or their chair in without having to use straps, thanks to the way that uh, inertia works when you're in a vehicle. And so if you're facing the opposite direction and your back is to the front of the bus, then, you know, inertia works in your favor. But in the cases like me, I'm a Surrey resident, okay? And Surrey is the last city to get a lot of the newer buses. And so thereby, many of the buses that I would have to take for work or for other purposes are those older buses that require straps or restraints. And so this is, again, something that we're being singled out for. And so, you know, I do hope that there is a consideration of um, disability awareness training that happens with TransLink as well as any other things. And of course, I'm available to provide that support as well as an accessibility consultant. It's what I live for. It's why I've dedicated my life towards this, because as I said, Everyone deserves the same universal access to everywhere that we go. Final question. If somebody was getting on a bus and so the driver can't help them saying that, no, sorry, the rule is because of physical distancing, I can't help you. You, I can call you a cab. Would, Would the person in the wheelchair or the mobility device be given the choice? Could you ride that bus not being strapped in, knowing that it's not safe if something was to happen? But could you make the choice to ride that bus without being strapped in? That's a driver-to-driver basis. You know, you have some drivers that completely understand, especially if it's raining outside or things like this, and you say, come on, isn't there anything you can do? But I've literally been in the situation, Jill, where drivers have said, sorry, there's nothing I can do, and literally have driven off. And like I said, I'm not a person that likes to stir the pot just to stir the pot. I do it when I feel like people's human rights are being violated. And so this is one of those situations where, yes, you are going to get drivers that will support, but many, and that's why I've had at least five people call me specifically and say, Marco, what do I do? Because they feel lost for words or they feel like their feedback forms have gone unheard. And this is why I said, you know what, I got to say something uh, just because I think we need to make positive change in our community so that everyone can have access to the places that they can go. It increases uh, positivity for everyone. And it also just shows that our community cares about every citizen, regardless of their ability. 
All right. Well, Marco, we'll leave it there for today. And if anything changes, let us know. But thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, there are still a lot of questions. I know there are a lot of parents who have concerns about what exactly back to school is going to look like when students are back in the classrooms on September 10th. Yesterday in Vancouver, there was a meeting held to address some of those concerns and to share some of the details on what's going to happen with that goal of returning all 50,000 students in the district to in-class instruction. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about uh, what was at the meeting and what people would like to see is Gord Lau, uh, Vancouver DPAC chair. Gord, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts so far on what we know about what the return to school is going to look like in Vancouver? I think um, I think parents still will have a lot of questions. I think the draft plan laid out last night um, at the board meeting answers some of those questions, but there are a lot of questions um, remaining to be answered. And again, this is a draft plan. It still does need to be approved by the province. I would say that secondary school parents um, have uh, some cause for relief. Uh, The plan laid out by the VSB shows uh, a lot of creativity and um, innovative thinking and really will reduce the number of students in the high school at any one time. And that gives us more opportunities for spacing, again, in the secondary schools. Um, in the elementary schools, the mandate from the ministry and the monies provided by the ministry really restrict the number of things that can be done. And um, there are parents that are understandably concerned about um, returning their child in elementary school to a classroom where physical spacing may not be possible. Again, that's something that the PHO has said largely that that's fine within the concept of a learning group that you can, you know, stop physical touching, but um, you, that it's not necessary to maintain physical spacing in these learning groups. But that runs contrary to a lot of what parents and families have been doing for the last three, four, five months. Um, so it's a little counterintuitive and understandably um, worrying. There are other families that have um, you know, vulnerable family members. Perhaps they're an extended family or they have immunocompromised uh, members of their family. And those anxieties for those families are probably even greater because, um, you know, the, if you have a perfectly healthy family, it may cause some anxiety. But if you have somebody who's you know, really at risk, um, the concerns are elevated. And that was uh, brought up as well uh, by one of the trustees taking a look specifically at that, say, if there's a family with vulnerable family members and a parent wants to keep a child home. uh, One of the concerns raised also was, uh, what about the next year? Do do you still get your place, your placement in that school? Would it be held? Did you get any clarity on that? I don't think that there's a lot. I think that's a fair question. It's something that uh, we as a DPAC are still advocating for. And I'm not sure that there's uh, full clarity with regards to how that looks. In our talks, we had an initial briefing with the VSB. It is something that they have uh, in, in some some ideas about, um, but it, it's awaiting approval from the ministry. 
And the, the class sizes as well, and we've seen this in Surrey talking about that they would not be going as far as having the, the cohorts or the learning groups wouldn't be as big as what the provincial guideline is. Uh, it looks like Vancouver is going that way as well. Like you said, this is a draft plan as it is right now. Is there is there any, I guess, confidence or, or people pleased that at least the learning groups are going to be a bit smaller than what the, the maximum is? I I think that I think those learning groups were always sized that way to provide some flexibility for um, some flexibility for the school districts. But realistically, the school districts would aim to um, aim to get well under those limits because otherwise, if something unexpected comes up, you don't have any room to deal with it. Um, and so I, I think you know they've they've really talked at that you know the core at the elementary level. Uh, I, I certainly get the sense that you know is, there may be some cases where the numbers will will edge up beyond a single class i think you know that i've heard a number of references to the classroom at the elementary level being the main unit of uh, the, the main learning group right that they're largely going to stay in classrooms and not only that i mean they're not going to move around the school from um, uh, from you know math to english uh, the teachers are going to be more likely to come to them and the the students will stay stationary. Right. Uh, what about the the issue of um, the cleaning the schools and making sure that the, those are in, that, that those are in place that kids have access to hand washing stations and if not the things like sanitizer. I think that's they're doing um, they're doing the same sort of things that they were doing in June, and they've and uh, with the benefit of time, uh, I, I understand that VSP has made some imp- improvements, especially with regards to availability of um, some of the hand washing areas. So, I, and and that's well within their um, that's well within their purview, and there are funds provided by the provincial government to um, increase cleaning, and um, and you know even some limited. P- and, and PPE. So I think, you know, that's straightforward. I think there will be um, operational issues at each school that, you know, they have, they'll have to figure out where exactly to distribute that hand sanitizer and so on. But for the most part, I think um, that's probably reasonably covered off. There are other issues that are probably um, bigger issues that aren't addressed by the funding from the provincial government. And uh, although the PHO has not con- or has commented very little on it, they are con- issues that concern parents. So I'll give you the issue of ventilation as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, that 46 million that they've got designated um, for back to school. It, it covers cleaning, it covers some PPE, but it certainly doesn't cover ventilation upgrades for the schools in Vancouver or the rest of the province, right? It just it just doesn't. Um, so that will be a, a concern to parents. And the concern being that so many of the buildings are so old, then they don't have good ventilation? That's that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the structures in Vancouver particularly are... Um, Many of them are on the older side. And so, you know, the advice that they're being given, basically, and this is information that the school board, it's, and it's not just from the school board, they've, they've asked what they need to do for the ventilation. And, you know, the, some of the advice is, you know, make sure that there is a window open in each classroom. Right. And that, that's and, you know, that's exactly what they're hearing from the province and they don't have money to do upgrades to the other, you know, otherwise. 
Uh, which doesn't seem like the best plan, given come November, it tends to rain every day and it's not exactly warm out. So one of the comments I've made with regards to the draft plan is, um, you know, as, as a Vancouver DPAC, we work with the district. We think that they've done a, a, a reasonable job given the constraints that have been handed to them. I know that the trustees at meeting last night um, passed a motion uh, asking them to asking them and their board chair to advocate to the ministry um, for additional funds uh, to provide um, additional improvements to meet parent concerns. And uh, I mean, you know that. That advocacy um, makes sense. It, again, many of these limitations come from the the funding that is provided, and you know, and and you know, you're hearing it. I'm hearing it. Parents do have concerns, even though that you know this has been signed off on by the PHO. Parents have concerns. And one of the other issues that's been brought forward too, and you mentioned this off the top, for students who maybe can't go back into the classroom, don't want to, for parents who aren't comfortable putting their kids back in the classroom, it's that idea of a hybrid learning model with that, that incorporates in-class and online. Do you feel that they've dealt with that? I think that at the secondary level, um, there are more... Um, either fully dis, uh, fully remote learning options available, and um, in the VSB plan, the um, the courses that children take will actually already be a hybrid model. That is to say, it'll be two weeks of in-class instruction and, and two weeks of um, remote instruction. So at the secondary uh, plan, I mean, you know, they've they've the kids have more independence. They're able to take uh, stay home on their own. They've they've used. Um, you know, technology to its, or their, their proposal uses technology to its best effect. Um, at the elementary level, um, there, the options are much more, to be perfectly frank, the options are much more limited. Um, and it's partly because um, that's not all elementary school activities or elementary school children are um, ready to deal with remote learning, right? So um, there's a lot so is it is it well dealt with? Well, again, I think at the secondary level, I can say, well, it's not bad. There's a lot of things filling up. But the elementary level, parents are definitely looking for more options. And do you think things will be resolved before kids are back in class on September 10th? I think that's, I think that we'll need to uh, see whether the province approves the plan and then we'll see need to see um, how the schools individually operationalize it. But I do think that um, some of these issues, I mean, you know, the questions about ventilation, uh, for example, uh, the question about, you know, maybe having fewer children in each classroom at the elementary level, these are issues that, uh, again, stem from uh, choices made at the provincial level. And um, you know, without without some advocacy, uh, without uh, big changes, I don't see any of that be that those pieces being resolved by September 10th. And even um, were additional funding to be provided at this very late date for increased ventilation or increased number of teachers, or even you know outdoor uh, you know possible outdoor classrooms, even if funding was provided for those at this late date, it, it's not going to nothing gets resolved that quickly by September 10th. 
Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the federal government today rolled out a $37 billion income support plan. It's for workers whose earnings have crashed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We heard earlier today from Employment Minister Carla Qualtro saying that while the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, will now come to an end in late September, a new benefit that pays $400 a week for up to 26 weeks will replace that for those who are not eligible for employment employment insurance. For the millions of Canadian workers who will have access to EI because of these changes, we want to assure you that there'll be equity between the EI program and the recovery benefits. We'll be establishing a minimum EI benefit amount of $400 per week to ensure that no one on EI is receiving less than someone receiving the recovery benefit. There will also be a $500 a week sickness benefit and a caregiving benefit created for anybody who has to stay home because they are ill or because their school or daycare is closed. So what does this all mean? I know a lot of people have questions about the transition of CERB to EI and some of these other programs. John Pincus joins us on the line now, a partner with Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. John, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, what do you think? I know that this was just announced today, but with CERB being extended another four weeks and then this shift to EI, what do people need to know? Well, I think this is yet another safety net that is being provided to people to recognize that we are, are still certainly far from being out of this crisis and job losses are going to, going to continue and very likely um, a lot of these uh, layoffs that have been stated as temporary uh, are, are potentially going to become uh, permanent uh, very soon. Um, so this is this new announcement has some very, very important changes, and, and perhaps one of the most important changes of this new program is the change in the requirement for insurable hours. So you used to have between about 400 and 720 insurable hours, you used to have that amount to need to in order to be able to qualify for the employment insurance benefit. Uh, they've now changed that significantly. Uh, so even if you have a minimum of 120 hours of work, because of course you probably haven't been working all that much if you need this benefit, um, then uh, you're, you're going to be qualified. So that's going to open up a, a huge uh, quadrant of people coming off of CERB uh, to get on EI, uh, even if they, they haven't been working that much this year. And what about the other programs that they've brought in as well, and specifically looking at people who are self-employed or people who work in the gig economy that don't that aren't in more the more traditional workplaces? Yes. Yeah, so this is this is probably one of the biggest gaps that was covered by CERB that so many people were worried about in transferring to EI because traditionally EI, of course, um, did not uh, apply to people who were. Um, uh, who are self-employed. Um, and so now this $400 a week benefit is going to uh, ensure that those people don't get left behind. Now, there's certain criteria that you have to meet. You have to uh, uh, have a, you know, a certain amount of, of income and having to, um, uh, you, you have to show that, uh, that you meet that income criteria um, and that your business has slowed because of COVID-19. Uh, but this is going to, I, I think, ensure that many, if not if not all, people who were on CERB uh, will be able to continue to apply for EI if um, they're still not earning any income 
because of uh, the crisis. And was that one of the biggest concerns that you were hearing or that we had as far as if CERB was going to end, there were going to be, um, there was going to be a million people or such that simply wouldn't have qualified for EI in its previous form and would have been left, and again, not working, but would have been left with no financial help? That's definitely one of the biggest concerns. Uh, that, I'd say, along with the insurable hours requirement, uh, were probably the two biggest anxieties for people. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the issue that uh, that was mentioned about individuals who have to stay home uh, to take care of their children due to school closures. So uh, this is really trying to basically um, import CERB into the more traditional EI program, uh, at least for the time being. Uh, and so it's not exactly a continuation of um, of CERB, and it, it looks like we may, I mean, it's yet to be seen exactly how this is going to be rolled out. One of the things that will be very interesting to see is whether this is sort of done on, on somewhat the honor system, uh, the way that CERB was done. Basically, you apply now and we'll make sure that you were, that you were eligible later. Um, or if it's going to, ha- you're going to have to go through the typical EI uh, procedure and and um, sort of get vetted on the front end. Right, because if you're on EI, do you have to show that you are looking for work, or you have to? I mean, there's rules. That nobody's really traveling all that much right now, anyway. But there's rules around traveling. Would it be those same rules? Do you think? Yes, I mean, I think those same rules should uh, should expect to apply in terms of uh, you know if you're. Certainly, if you're getting EI benefits because you're out of work, um, then arguably that should there, there should be that requirement that there was before that you have to attest that you are still looking for work. Uh, employment insurance doesn't really inquire into what those efforts are, but you have to attest that you're doing something. Um, so I would expect that's going to continue now. Um, so this isn't this isn't shouldn't be understood as a continuation of CERB. This is just a much broader, uh, a much more uh, generous version of uh, the employment insurance program that we knew pre-pandemic. Right. Because I guess the difference being, too, if somebody is uh, temporarily laid off, you're waiting for your job to come back. You're hoping that your job comes back. You're not necessarily going to be looking for another job elsewhere. That's true, except we also have to remember that this temporary layoff period, although it was extended, is going to end, right? So the, the, it was extended to 24 weeks, but that is that, that the end of that period, uh, generally speaking for most people, is basically going to coincide with the switch from CERB to this new modified EI program. So most of the people who are going to be on this program, they're going to know, if, if they're out of work, they're going to know they're not coming back. Um, so I don't think that problem is going to surface that much because um, people are there's not going to be any excuse at that point for employees to say, you know, I'm I'm waiting to see if they'll call me back because they will know. Right.